Let us pray. Father, we continue to stand in awe of all that you have done for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord. May we give you all praise and honor and glory this day and every day. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. So good to see all of you here this morning. And um, what a wonderful several weeks we've had here at All Saints Church. And um, I know a whole lot of you as volunteers and the staff, we were kind of in recovery mode this week. Um, came up for air just a little bit, but it has been such a wonderful time and so good to see some of you that have returned that haven't been here really much since COVID started and also some folks that we hadn't seen in a while otherwise as well. We're so glad that you're here. And again, good morning to everyone watching via the live stream. We love you and we miss seeing you in person. Our gospel reading today from John chapter 20 is always the gospel reading for the second Sunday in Easter. This is true in all three years of what we call the lectionary cycle. For those of you who may not be familiar with it, the way our Sunday readings are structured to work through all of Scripture is that we have year A, B, and C. And the gospel that primarily is read in year A is Matthew, year B is Mark, and year C, which is what we're in right now, is Luke. But then St. John's gospel is interspersed throughout all three of those years, particularly uh, during the Easter season and a few other times during the year. And you would also notice that during the Easter season, rather than reading typically from the Old Testament, our Old Testament lesson instead is a reading from the book of Acts. So if you wonder why that's all going on, it's all designed to fit and so that we, we work through um, the whole council of Scripture in the course of three years on Sunday mornings. John chapter 20 records two of the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus to his disciples. The passage is very familiar to many of us. In the first encounter, which takes place on the evening of the resurrection, Thomas is not present. And Thomas was struggling to come to grips, to get his head around the reality of all that is being reported to him by the other disciples. And we hear those very familiar words in John 20, 15, that Thomas says, unless I see the prints of the nails in his hands. Unless I touch the scars myself. And eight days later, Jesus again appears to his disciples. And this time, Thomas is present and sees and touches Jesus for himself. Now, our New Testament reading today from Revelation chapter 1 also records another encounter of the Apostle John with Jesus. But this time, Scripture says that the Apostle John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. And Jesus in this moment is revealed to him in all of his glory. Now we need to keep in mind, this is the same John who wrote, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. And John, St. John, was the youngest of all the disciples, most likely still a teenager during Jesus' earthly ministries. In later life, even as we read in Revelation this morning, he was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and he was the last of the 12 disciples to die. 
He was the only one to not die a martyr's death, although he suffered greatly for the gospel. And what John writes here and records in Revelation has taken place somewhere between 30 and 50 years after Jesus' resurrection. So John at this point is a very old man. John's experience here is very different than encountering Jesus before his ascension back to the right hand of the Father. Hear how John describes it in verses 12 through 16, Revelation 1. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Verse 17 continues describing John's physical response. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. John has a physical response when confronted with the full impact of Christ's glory. Falling at Christ's feet in an unconscious or even trance-like state. We need to understand that even after Jesus was resurrected from the dead, he was still not fully clothed in all of his heavenly glory. This did not occur until he ascended back to the Father's right hand 40 days later, on what we observe on Ascension Day, which we will have a service that day, um, 40 days after Easter. We also need to understand that what happened following Christ's ascension back to the right hand of the Father is not a bestowal of new glory on Christ. Rather, it is a restoration of his full glory, which was rightfully his as the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. I think it's safe to say that none of us has experienced the presence of God in quite the same way as John did in Revelation 1 as he was experiencing the presence of the glorified Jesus. Yet many of us have indeed experienced God's presence in real and true and powerful ways. And when in his grace God blesses us through a genuine encounter in his presence, we should never take it lightly or take it for granted. I actually find it troubling how at times people people make light of the presence and the power of God. They take it somehow, which is very skewed in my mind, for granted, or they depict their experience real or embellished sometimes as some sort of a badge of their own super spirituality rather than recognizing that the blessing of God's presence is all by God's goodness and God's grace. Or at times, and this is even more concerning, people speak flippantly of these types of experiences or encounters in the presence of the living God. We never, never see any of those things in Scripture. Because we are talking here about coming into the presence of God. God who is absolutely holy. Into the presence of God in whose presence no sin can dwell. 
And for me, this type of thing brings to mind the question of Malachi 3.2, which speaks most immediately of Christ's second coming. Who can stand when he appears? As I was preparing this sermon, I thought of the words of the hymn we sing here from time to time, one of my favorites, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise, which captures this imagery as well, the first verse. Immortal, invisible, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. Most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. And then the fourth verse. Great Father of glory, pure Father of light, thine angels adore thee, all veiling their sight. All laud we would render, O oh, help us to see. Tis only the splendor of light hideth thee. In the midst of John being absolutely overwhelmed by the presence of Christ's glory, he also has an experience in the midst of all of this that was familiar to him. We read that Jesus laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, do not be afraid. The same words that John and all of the disciples had heard spoken to them on many occasions by Jesus during his earthly ministry. And then we read in John 20, as Jesus comes among the disciples, peace be with you. Again, a, a way of saying some of the very same things. And again, this would have been very familiar. But John, in the midst of being overwhelmed with these words of Jesus, must have felt the peace and assurance that only comes through Jesus and knowing that this is indeed his Lord. He felt that same gentle hand touch him. The hand of the one who had comforted and encouraged him so many times in the past. And John, in the midst of the power of this experience, must have felt an incredible peace at this point, even in the presence of the glorified Jesus. And then at this point, we read the first of our two, what, I, what would be called I am sayings in this passage, where Jesus said to him, I am the first and the last. And again, to hear these words and to hear Jesus speaking the words, I am, would have been reassuring to John. We need to remember that there is a whole series of I am sayings that John records in his gospel. And then it continues in the book of Revelation. And so for John, especially to hear that would have been comforting and reassuring because the same Jesus who, when he was walking the earth, had said, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate. I am the vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Now says to John, I am the first and the last. And something we need to understand when we talk about the I am sayings they speak of that which flows from Christ's nature, from who he is. These are not simply things that Jesus does. Being the resurrection and the life, being the good shepherd, being the bread of life, being the first and the last, flow from the very essence of his being. I am these things, is what Jesus is saying. It reassured John. And it should, brothers and sisters, reassure us as well. 
because Jesus has not changed. This is Jesus, the eternal Son of God. This is Jesus who walked the earth. This is Jesus who healed people and had compassion on the multitudes. This is Jesus who was crucified and raised from the dead. This is Jesus who 40 days later later ascended back to the right hand of the Father. He has not changed. What he does, his promises are still absolutely true. And as we heard read from the letter of Hebrews last Sunday, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Do we believe that? Amen. Whatever we're facing, this eternal and consistent reality should bring us encouragement. No matter what we're facing or dealing with, this should stir hope in us. It should, by the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us, give us confidence and assurance. Not confidence in ourselves, not confidence in what we can accomplish, but confidence in God and who he is, in his unchanging character, and what he is working on our behalf. Everything around us might change. It might even be, in a temporal sense, in turmoil. But we can count on one consistent and constant truth and reality in this life. Jesus Christ is the same. He does not change. He is still touching people. He is still saving and transforming people. He is still guiding his people. And he is delivering people just as he always has and will continue to do. It's important for us to grasp this important truth of the reality that Jesus is unchanging. We need to grab hold of that and lay hold of it in a real, practical, life-transforming way. Because walking in this truth means walking continually in God's presence. I'm not talking about some emotional high. I'm not talking about always being on the mountaintop. That's not what walking in God's presence is all about. Yes, I pray to God that there would be those moments. But this is not about hype. It is not about feelings. It is not about emotions. It is about walking in the presence of the living God. With his presence, his resurrection life, even as we talked about last week, filling us. So that that life of Jesus flowing through us touches others as we interact with them and encounter them. Brothers and sisters, that is the need of people today, just as it always has been. If you talk to someone 50 or 60 years ago, at least in our culture, and ask what was the greatest threat to Christianity or the faith, people would say atheism, or maybe you'd hear the term communistic atheism, modernity, enlightenment thinking. Things are different because now, as I've ta- and I've talked about this in the past, but now what we have are false or faux spiritualities. Yes, belief in the supernatural, belief in the spiritual, maybe even belief in some sort of God. But people need to encounter God, the God of Scripture, our Lord Jesus Christ as a living reality. I am the first and the last. Jesus then makes a second I am statement to John. 
And he gives to John the absolute bedrock basis of the assurance John was living in when Jesus says to him, I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. What does it mean for Jesus to make such a statement? What did it mean for John? What does it mean for us? There are two things I want to touch on. First, it verifies that Jesus is indeed God, God the Son. For Jesus to say, I am the living one, is for him to state explicitly that he is God the Son for all time and eternity, past, present, and future. And Jesus' words here are reflected throughout the Old Testament scriptures in many places as well, which speak of the living God. I think especially of Daniel 3, 26. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. And we see this same truth continue to be proclaimed in the New Testament. In the very essence of his being, Jesus is God, and he possesses and gives supernatural truly eternal life to those who come to him. As the living one, Jesus is indeed the son of God. The second thing we see here as the living one, it speaks of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. We serve the living God. Living eternally in Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus as God the Son stands in contrast to all the other gods, emphasizing lowercase g. Psalm 96 verse 5 says, For all the gods of the people are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. The gods of the nations that opposed Old Testament Israel were worthless, lifeless idols. I'd like to go to the Walters Museum in Baltimore, which is an incredible art and antiquities gallery. And in the antiquities section, when you walk through particularly the ancient Near Eastern um, areas, they've got at different places these little carved figurines of Baals and Asherahs and, and that sort of thing. I look at those figurines and I think, people actually worshipped before these? I mean, it, it, it really, for me, when I saw them firsthand, it really kind of inform my understanding of some of the things in the Old Testament much more. It's like people actually worship and bow before these figurines. How tragic. The gods of the nations that opposed Israel were worthless, lifeless idols. A figment of the people's imagination or the creation of human hands. Fictitious deities designed by human hands to serve human ends. And things have not changed. While radically different in some ways than the Old Testament world or the New Testament world, our world in many ways isn't different at all. Because human nature and human behavior haven't changed. People still create gods in their image, lowercase g. They create gods to serve their human ends. Gods that serve human desires, gods who are finite and limited, 
Gods that aren't any larger than human capacity and understanding and comprehension. But the God we're speaking of here, he is the living God. The Lord, he is God. I know that it's not politically correct, but we, meaning people all around the world, do not all worship and serve the same God, simply identifying him or that deity by different names. That is a lie from hell. The gods of Hindus are idols. They're worthless and they're dead. The God of Islam is not living and never has been. The only God who is living and true is the God of Scripture, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God of the Trinity, revealed in the Bible as the living God, all of the gods of the nations, all of the gods that people erect in their lives through their thoughts or their creation are idols. Our God, our God, he alone is the living God. And then finally, Jesus says to John, I hold the keys in the second half of verse 18. Because he is alone, the living God, because he is alive forever and ever, Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. Again, the second portion of verse 18. We need to understand here, the keys are spoken of symbolically. And it gives us a beautiful word picture of the level of, of Christ's supreme authority. And again, God in his grace and his mercy has given us this understanding, gave people on that day this understanding through tangible, real-world realities that they could connect with. In the ancient world, the person who held and was responsible for the keys to the home of the ruler was the person with the highest level of authority in that household. Keys symbolize possessing the authority to control whatever those keys open and whatever those keys lock. Jesus has absolute power as the eternal son of God over life and death. Hades, the place of punishment where the wicked suffer until the final judgment, is under Jesus' authority. Satan has never had full authority over that place. Only Jesus has full authority. God has full authority. As God, Jesus is Lord of life and death. That meant that the believers in the seven churches that we read about in the next two chapters, chapter 2 and 3 of Revelation, could trust him. They could trust him in the midst of incredible persecution. They could trust him when they were surrounded by heresy. They could trust him even facing the likely prospect of a martyr's death. And it means that we, we can trust him. We can fully trust God with our lives, with everything that we are, knowing that everything we will face is in his hands. And even when it doesn't feel like it in our flesh, we have the assurance that he has things under control. This isn't in my notes, but my dear friend, John Hobbs, went to be with the Lord about a month ago, who I've spoken of, who so prof- profoundly impacted my life. This young man, he died of COVID. And John had a saying that he would repeat very often when he was preaching. His name is Jesus. He is altogether lovely. 
and he does all things well. And he does, and he is. He has things under control. Nothing and no one in this life can take us out of his hand or away from his care. Nothing and nobody can rob us of our life in him. And as we, by God's grace and power at work in us, the power of the resurrected Jesus at work in us by the Spirit of God, walk and live in that reality, God's life will indeed flow through us. This is not hype, friends. This is what God's word says. This is what we see in the New Testament. God's life will flow through us. And we will see Jesus doing his good and gracious work of setting people free and delivering people and transforming others just like he continues to transform us as we yield to his life and his work and his presence in our lives. And as we do that, we will see God do things that perhaps we could have never thought or imagined, not because of us, but because we are becoming ever greater and more fully surrendered vessels to his work and his presence in our lives and the life of this church. Amen? Amen. 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 Let us pray. Father, we give you great thanks that Jesus is indeed the Lord of glory. We give you thanks that you are the living God and your kingdom shall not be destroyed. And we give you thanks that you continue to do the same wonderful things that you have been doing through centuries of touching, delivering, transforming, renewing, remaking, and bringing glory to your name. So Lord, May we seek your face, which is to seek your presence. As we come into your holy presence, may you refresh us. May you renew us. May you make us more like Jesus. And may you work in us your good pleasure that we would be about our Father's kingdom business. And Lord, may we remember, even as my dear friend said so often, His name is Jesus. He is altogether lovely. And he does all things well. Amen.